So when I was a freshman at Harding, uh, I lived in Harbin Dorm, which was right next to Rhodes Field House where the team plays, the basketball team plays. They've got a great basketball gym. And me and some guys discovered this trick that no freshman in college needs to discover, which is that if you pull really hard on the Rhodes Fieldhouse back door, it opens. And uh, so we started every, like a few times a week. I mean, curfew uh, was kind of a suggestion in our minds. And so around 11... 11.30, 12, we would go over, after the RAs checked in, we would go over to Rhodes Fieldhouse, pull on the door, and go in and play basketball. We did that for weeks, months. And then uh, one night, right before spring break, I knew it was right before spring break because I was going on a campaign the next day and I still hadn't packed. About midnight, we go to Rhodes Fieldhouse and we shoot ball. About 1 o'clock, I'm like, I should probably pack because I'm responsible, you know? And I go back to my room and about an hour later, all the guys I was shooting basketball with came back with one significant change. They were all wearing Harding basketball jerseys and shorts and socks because they had discovered that next to the gym was the locker room and they had just loaded up like it was Black Friday. They were, you know, some had extra pairs of shorts, you know, I guess Christmas gifts or something. Anyway... And this really bothered me, so about 15 minutes I go to a couple of my friends and I'm like, guys, how is this not stealing? We should probably take this back. And um, so they did. We did. And I don't think it was because they like respected me. I think it's because they were thinking I was going to tell on them. So uh, me and one other guy go back to the field house around 2 in the morning to put all that stuff up. We do put it back and then we go to leave and we open the back door. And for the first time in months, Harding security is right there. Now, if you don't know anything about Harding, you need to know they take security pretty seriously. And so I had that kind of fight or flight moment and I chose flight. I took off, I ran as hard as I could. I got like 30 yards away. And then it dawned on me, the guy I broke back in with didn't run with me. He was just standing there chatting it up with security. So I kind of just slowly walked back to the security guards. <laughs> and the security guard's kind of confused with the you know, boomerang criminal that I am. And you know, we give him a very edited version of what happened. We didn't tell him all about the stealing or anything. Um, but just that we discovered we could get in Fieldhouse for shooting some basketball. And he said, okay, if you give me your names and nothing's missing, then you won't get in any trouble. And I had this kind of crisis moment where I was like, man, a person of integrity and character would say, give him his name, because he didn't know my name. Um, but I could get in trouble. And so I took a deep breath and did what I had to do. I told him my name was Mike Bauer. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. The reason I tell you that story is because when I said to those guys, my friends, how is this not stealing? You want to know what they told me? It's worked into our tuition. <laughs> I, you, you cannot overestimate the ability of college freshmen to be able to justify the unjustifiable, right? But is this not our problem too? Is this not the problem you see in the world? I mean, think about this. 
Think about how easily it is for us, how easy it is for us to justify things which don't need to be justified. And you can see this if you look far enough back in your past, when the consequences have caught up with you and you realize I should that was that was a bad error. And in the time though, it made total sense to you. Now, let's take this further. Do you not see this in the way the world is operating? Democrats justify their bad behavior by what Republicans' bad behavior is. Republicans justify their bad behavior by what Democrats' bad behavior is. We, whatever, whenever there's a group with competing values, whether that's uh, Christians or secular people or whatever, what we do is justify our actions based on the unjustifiable actions of others, just like Adam and Eve before us. Instead of dealing with our own stuff, we point fingers and blame. But this is not the way of Jesus. Okay, so this sermon is a hard sermon, and it's one that comes straight from Jesus. But I think if we let it, it'll be a way to heal and grow and be transformed. And ultimately, it's all about grace. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1. Remember, Matthew is kind of a manual of discipleship. It was the most popular gospel for the first hundred years because it had more face time with Jesus than any other gospel, more red letters than any other gospel. And in towards the end of the gospel, Jesus has been talking about building this new community he calls church. And at this point, he addresses those who belong to his church. And he says this. At one point, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus did what we just did. He said, Bring a child here and place the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And now, we think, most of us think, he continues to talk about children. He doesn't. He has encouraged those of us in the church to become like children. And now, he's talking about how we live together. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, God is watching. Okay. Jesus is trying to be shocking and direct here. Jesus knows... We don't think about our life the way Jesus thinks about our life. We don't think about the world we live in the way Jesus thinks about it. And since we often misunderstand, here's what Jesus knows. We're going to hurt each other. 
The deepest hunger of the human heart, or at least one of the deepest, is to be in community. The problem with community is that we hurt each other regularly. And so what Jesus is doing in this moment, and see if you don't see this, He is challenging us as He's inviting us into this community that's unlike any other community. He's challenging us to become a student of our own moral character for our own sake and so we don't hurt other people. He says, if you cause anyone else to stumble, that's actually a phrase that He's borrowing from Isaiah chapter 8. And here's the big thing I want you to see. Jesus thinks, apparently, there is something I can do to you that can cause you to stumble. There is some kind of moral character issue that I have that I may think is private that eventually will come out and cause you to stumble. Some translations don't have stumble. Some say sin. In other words, we can cause other people to sin. My own character flaws will not stay private. No matter how much I think they might. They will overflow from my life into yours and impact you. And yours will impact mine. My sin will cause a sinful reaction in you. Or worse than just sin, falling down or falling away. And here's where it gets tricky. Because all of us know people who used to be followers of Jesus, who are no longer followers of Jesus, because of something another follower did or said. And so Jesus would say, and again, He's trying to shock us. He would say, it's better for this to be put around our neck. It's a millstone. It's what they use to grind grain. It's pretty heavy. For us to put this around our neck and then to walk the plank. It's better for us to have that happen to us than for this kind of stuff to happen. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is a realist. He says such things are going to happen. This is the way the world is. It's impossible to go through life uninjured. But woe to you if it comes through you. In other words, he's saying, take this really, really seriously. Pay attention to yourself and your own moral character. Be a student of your own moral, moral character. Listen, there's not a person in this room who hasn't been hurt. Maybe for you it was uh, when you were growing up or in high school and, and you've developed ways, or maybe you're developing them now, ways of coping with the hurt. That's just the way the world is. Hurt is going to happen. And often what happens is we develop ways of coping with it by habits and those habits cause hurt in other people. So you didn't feel loved or accepted. And, and then in college, you started drinking. And you drink too much. And because you drink too much, you're ignoring your kids. And they don't feel loved and accepted. Or you had an angry parent who was controlling. And you resented it for so many years. And now, you're out of control. And you're angry. Do you know, and this is true in movies and literature, and it has been for thousands of years. Do you know, in story terms, what they call someone who has had great pain or tragedy happen to them, and they use that pain and tragedy to decide to make the world a better place, to make it to where that never happens to anyone else? Do you know what we call those characters? Heroes. But in the same vein... There's a character that's been around for thousands of years 
he or she gets hurt, they're injured, and they have real injury. And they use that pain and decide they want to get revenge or they want to inflict that pain on someone else. Do you know what we call those characters? Villains. Jesus is saying, don't be a villain. Don't, in this broken world, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of harm. This is the way the world is. But if you're a follower of Jesus, here's the difference. You are really good at practicing looking in the mirror. You, before you start blaming all the problems on those people or that group of people, you look in the mirror and you say, where is the moral, moral character in me at? That's what Jesus is saying. And he's using really strong words for this. He wants to sober us up. He wants to wake us up. He wants to warn us. He brings up hell for the second time in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's strong words. Hell for Jesus is not just a future warning, but a present reality as well. So here's another way Jesus talks about hell in the Gospel of Matthew, just a few chapters later. He's talking to religious people. And he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're not paying attention to what's going on inside of you. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Wow, Jesus, you're going to get killed. Some of us have been in church communities where it's toxic and unhealthy. And if you probably asked people in that community in the moment, they would all have a different answer for why. But if it's a typical toxic church, nobody in that church would say, well, I'm part of the problem. That's what happens when we don't obey Jesus here. We justify our own bad behavior with other people's bad behavior and just keep inviting hell into God's good world and God's church. Hell in the Bible is a real thing. And it's, this isn't a sermon on hell, but here's just kind of the cliff notes. Hell is both God's judgment and a mess of our own making. And that's what Jesus is warning about here. It is the strongest possible language for a reason. Okay. <laughs> Everybody take a deep breath. This portion of the sermon is over. We don't want that. So what's the alternative here? Well, grace. Lots of it. But grace is not just forgiveness of our sins. It's a deeper, better version of life. It's growing in grace. Ever since I've been in ministry, I have on a regular basis. It's hard, it's hard to communicate this. Do you realize that there are people walking around among you in this community who are saints? I have gotten the privilege to get to see God transform people into what the New Testament would call saints. I have seen people lay down their lives for, in the name of Jesus for their families, for their church family, for their cities for their neighborhood. I've seen the gospel spread like wildfire through a community because someone took Jesus at his word. But I've also seen a lot of baby Christians kind of swimming around. People who may have been in church for decades, but they've basically just had the same year over and over and over again. 
Do you know that this is Jesus' expectation from the beginning? When you get baptized, this is what you're signing up for. Not to become more religious. Not to learn how to look like you know all the answers to every Bible question. But to actually become a person filled with the Holy Spirit. This is all throughout the New Testament. So you can write some of these scriptures down. I'm just going to hone in on one. But here's some places it's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15.10. 2 Corinthians 6.1. 2 Timothy 2, 1. 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 says it like this. Uh, starting in, and this is after he talks about grace and how God's grace gives us um, the power to, he, he's, he's created in advance for us works, good works that we can do. And in verse 8, Paul says, um, Chapter 7, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace through the working of his power, dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite, power. And what does grace and power do? Well, although I'm least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. Are you talking about forgiveness of sins, Paul? No, the grace to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That I, I am able to explain to them the mysteries of what God is doing in this unheard of multi-ethnic faith that God is bringing all nations together in. That's what he's going to get into. And then in verse uh, 14, he says, for this reason, because of the grace that was given to me, and the grace helps him grow and accomplish all these things. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted rooted and established in love, may have that power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Transformed by the Spirit, Growing in grace. These are the expectations of a a disciple growing in the Lord. I can say without expectation for the first few centuries, this is the, without exception in the first few centuries, this was the expectation of becoming a disciple of Jesus. It's to grow in grace. Grace does not just mean forgiveness. It's all grace. It's the grace to become a new kind of human being. One that's not battling like an eating disorder or control issues and addictions and self-religious or self-righteous pride. Listen, all those things are things God's grace and the Spirit of God. No shame if you got any of that. Of course we would have some of that. This is the way the world is. But you don't have to be like that. We don't have to live like that. Dallas Willard once said, that saints go through more grace than anybody else, which is counterintuitive. Because you would think like, you know, those real bad sinners over there, as if that's not all of us. But you would think that, you know, sinners need grace, saints don't. And he says, no, saints burn through grace like jet fuel. Because grace is not just forgiving sins. It's being transformed. And the reason this sermon is necessary, it's important, is because Western Christianity for the last 200 years, every decade, has just lowered the bar, a bar that's not ours to lower, on what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, following Jesus is not for everybody. But if you choose to do it, 
We don't get to lower the bar in doing it. And, and here's what it looks like. This is going to sound so normal to you. What it, what it looks like now in America to follow Jesus is you signed up for this guy who changed the world, is changing the world, and is changing so many people in the world. And yet, if you come to a church, you might hear a call that sounds like this. Hey, here's what it means to follow Jesus. Come to church once a week, um, unless, it's unless it's inconvenient. Give some of your money to keep the lights on and keep the ministers fed, if you can, and unless it's inconvenient. Uh, maybe pray before meals. I want to say in all love and grace, the first Christians would not have understood that as following Jesus. I don't think Jesus understands that as following Jesus. I don't want to be a part of that. I think it's too small of a story to give my life to. I don't think it changes people. I think it makes them just a religious version of what they already were going to be. So, let's close with a little bit of self-reflection today. There's a story Jesus tells once about, a, it's a parable of a sower. A guy who's going out and just throwing seed everywhere, indiscriminately. And some of that seed lands on concrete so it doesn't do anything. And some of it lands on thin soil and so it can't take root and it doesn't do anything. And some of it lands on good soil, but as soon as it starts to um, come up... It's choked by the weeds. And Jesus explains later, the weeds are the anxieties of this life and the desire for wealth. But then some of that seed, some of that seed lands on really good soil. And it comes up a hundred times. The harvest comes up a hundred times. Why does Jesus tell that story? It's because he's talking to a crowd. And he's putting into practice what he's telling us to put into practice now. He's asking these people, by means of the story, which kind of soil are you? He's talking to a crowd, and in Matthew there's a big distinction between crowds and disciples. Jesus could always draw a crowd. But he's asking, which one do you want to be? What kind of soil are you? Self-reflection seems to be pretty big to Jesus. A few years ago, our entire team, PV staff team, went to a conference in Houston with a church that had been doing disciple making for years and years. So we wanted to be trained in how to help us grow deeper as a church. And one of the tools they gave us uh, was this discipleship will. Uh, it's not in the Bible, but a lot of its principles are. And here's what it is. It's just kind of a life cycle of people. Um, so somebody who is not a believer, and by the way, if that's you, I hope... This isn't offensive, but this is kind of, we don't get to make this up. Somebody who is not a believer is considered spiritually dead. Um, so then somebody gives their life to the Lord. They get baptized. They're born again. They become a spiritual infant. Then as they grow, if they grow, they become more of a spiritual child than spiritual young adult and ultimately a spiritual parent. So a lot of times what happens in church in America is, you know, they're spiritually dead people, and then, you know, maybe they get baptized, and, and sometimes that's where we stop. Okay, see you in heaven. But baptism isn't the end of anything, right? Right? Yeah, I mean, in fact, Jesus says, listen, you need to consider the cost. Count the cost before you decide to start doing this. There are good reasons not to follow me. Make sure you're paying attention to those too. 
Because Jesus is going to work on you in ways you never dreamed of. He might call you to some really difficult things in life. Are you sure you want to surrender to Him? Now, after you're baptized, you're kind of like a spiritual infant. And I don't want to brag, but me and Leslie are kind of experts on infants. We get it. You know what an infant needs? Come on, what does an infant, what does a baby need? Everything, that's right. Sounds like some other experts are out there, yeah. Attention, love, care, milk, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then after infants, you got toddlers. We're also experts on toddlers. You know what toddlers need? Want. My way, right? We want it done my way. Toddlers are highly attuned to getting their own way and are very offended when they don't or worse, when someone else gets their way. And then you have teenagers. Uh, <laughs> teenagers are kind of like cats, right? Yeah. Like they ignore you most of the day, but they act like they love you for three minutes of the day. It tends to be around the time that you're feeding them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, teenage, you might find yourself good at serving this person in the, in the teenage. You might learn some of your spiritual giftings. You might need a spiritual parent as well, though. Like, for example, spiritual teenagers, they can serve a lot, but they also need a spiritual parent. Like Eden, our oldest, she's a great babysitter. She still needs a mom and dad. And finally, spiritual parents. This is the goal of every mature Jesus follower, that we would become people who having learned or learning how to follow Jesus well in our own life, we also become partners in the gospel and the spirit of God by helping disciple others. These are people who don't have to be the doers of all things. Like, did you ever notice Jesus doesn't baptize anyone? He lets his disciples do that. So just to drive this home a little bit more, here's some phrases you might hear from people in these different um, phases of life. So somebody who is not a Christian, a spiritually dead person, might say something like, I don't believe there's a God. Or, I'm a good person, so I should be okay. Or, I don't like religion because almost every war in history was fought for religion. Just a side note, that is patently and provably false. But, you know, lies get around the world before truth can put on their pants. So, that's just the world we live in. People think that. Okay. Now, Somebody decides to give their life to the Lord, they're an infant, uh, a spiritual infant, but here's some things they might say. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I believe in Jesus, but my church is, when I'm in the woods or out on the lake, and it dawned on me this morning that maybe I shouldn't have preached this sermon this close to deer season, but um, <laughs> our people have hurt me, so it's just me and God. Or what about people who are in the children phase, being a spiritual child? I love my small group. I don't want to add any more people to it. I don't want my group to branch off and start another one. Or, I didn't like worship today. If only they did this. Or, I'm just not getting fed with the sermons. Now, obviously, no one says that one. But, <laughs> I've had plenty of people say that one to me through the years. But it raises the question, who can't feed themselves? Well, kids, right? I get it. It's a season. Then young adults in faith. You might say something like this. I love my small group so much, but I realize there are others who need a group like this. Your horizons are starting to get bigger. I think I can lead a small group with a little help. I've got some friends I've been trying to invite to church that would be willing to come to my house. Or the next slide. Look how many people were at church today. 
I had to park on the back row. Isn't that great? So you can see the disposition of the heart is shifting. And this is not about growing a church. It's about growing you. It's about the way you approach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Steve and Rachel in our small group have the flu. I need to call our group to see if anyone made meals for them. Or, I notice we don't have a ministry for single moms. I'd like to get involved in starting one. Just a word of encouragement, PB. I've been here five years now. And when I first got here, I pretty quickly realized the majority of people in this church are in this category. And that's a really good thing. There's a maturity here that's really good. And what that means, if you're a new person, what that means is you're looking at people that are trying to take Jesus seriously. They love to serve. And they're good at putting other people's needs before their own. But a word of challenge, too. God's not done with you yet. God is not calling us just to be spiritual teenagers, but spiritual parents. And some phrases you might hear from a spiritual parent is something like, this guy at work asked me to explain the Bible to him. Pray for me. Or we get to baptize someone in our small group tonight. When is the next PV 101 class? I want to get her plugged into ministry somewhere. Or, I realize that discipleship happens at home too. Will you hold me accountable to spend time discipling my kids? Now, maybe you're like me and you find yourself a little bit in all of those categories. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about where you're at today. If you said one of those phrases in the recent week or two, listen, I'm not trying to throw guilt on you. If you feel conviction, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe God's doing something in your heart and calling you deeper into the Lord. But I wanted to share this because Jesus is saying this is like one of the biggest steps towards discipleship. You can't grow if you don't know. And so we have a tool at PV. It's um, self-checkup. It's anonymous. We're not going to get your information. We're not going to follow up with how's it going with that. This is a way for you to look in the mirror and consider, how are you doing? Where am I at with the Lord? Without any judgment, just evaluate. Just a way of thinking, how can I grow in the Lord? And if you find yourself kind of spiritually dead or you have a hunger to know more about Jesus, you can text um, water to this number if you'd like to take the first step in following Jesus. Or if you see yourself as a spiritual infant or a child and you feel convicted about that, let us help you get connected to a small group of people to help you grow. And if you see yourself as a spiritual young adult, then let us help get you connected to ways to serve the brothers and sisters around you, the community around you. And if you see yourself as a spiritual parent, listen, praise God. God has been working in your life. Don't get spiritual pride. Realize it's the grace of God that you've been growing in. And if God has been pouring that much into your life, it's been about more than just your life. It's been about the world around you. So find someone you can pour into. Search out ways you can be um, a spiritual father or mother to others. Maybe that means when you take the casserole to that family who's hurting, bring someone else along with you so they can uh, be a part of it. Maybe it's giving a word of encouragement to people who are younger than you about what you see God doing in their life. Show people what it means to follow Jesus in your life so that they can see how to follow Him in theirs. And now back to Jesus and hell and execution. This is a hard sermon. Jesus knows it's a hard sermon. 
Jesus is saying it's better to be executed than to not do this. And at first you want to be like, who does this guy think he is? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's the guy who's going to be executed. He's the one who is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus takes his own medicine for us. The motivation here is not guilt. This is who God is. This is who God has always been. And He's inviting us to a life that is wonderful and rich and full of both grace and truth. So we take the millstone off our neck. We know we are not condemned. We are looking at the cross and realizing He took the medicine He prescribed to us. And we take that millstone off our neck because it's just too heavy to carry around. The dream of Jesus is to be a disciple-making community of the way of Jesus. And the word He uses for that is church.